You're listening to the TV Obsessive channel, presented by tvobsessive.com. Okay, welcome back to the TV Obsessive podcast. As always, I'm Cameron Crane, executive editor of tvobsessive.com. Joined, uh, as always, by Ryan Kirksey, writer and contributor for the site. Our 32nd uh, podcast episode. Um, so we've been doing this for a bit. You can go back and listen to the archives. I think they hold up for posterity. Uh, how you doing today, Ryan? I'm doing great. Uh, finales are always good to talk about. We've got one coming up today. And tr- true story, true story. I'm going over to my in-laws tonight for chili. So I'm a little concerned about what the topic of conversation is going to be about. <laughs> we'll touch on that a little bit later. Now, do you do you eat biscuits with chili? Um, normally, I'm in Texas. Normally here in Texas, we're either straight chili or it's cornbread or, or cracker or stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah same. I mean, same. I'm not in Texas, but I don't think I've ever had biscuits with chili, but it sounds pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Certainly not eating chili and spaghetti, with apologies to people in Cincinnati. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about the season five finale of Fargo, titled Bisquick. For some reason, they misspelled Bisquick. I don't know if there's anything to read into there. Um, we'll get into that in the latter part of the pod, as per usual, though. First, we'll talk a bit about what's in the news and what we've been watching this week. Things like that. We're sitting here, it's January 16th. What's in the news, Ryan? Well, everything in the past couple of days has been dominated by talk of the Emmys. Um, I think in the least surprising news ever, we got a lot of awards for Succession, a lot of awards for The Bear, a lot of awards for Beef, and uh, everybody else was sort of fighting for position with all the scraps. So um, yeah. any thoughts on that? No, no real surprises, I guess, based on what we saw in the Globes and other, other awards. Right. Like, if anything, beef would be the surprise, but it's winning awards everywhere. So it's clearly the like critical darling of the year, yes. as it were. Um, the Emmys, it's for the Bear season one. The timing right. is all off, right? They're, they're originally going to do these in, uh, in the fall. Um, so I don't know if the existence of season two influenced anyone. You know that that's uh, been quite the discourse, at least here on Tuesday morning, of how many how many of these Academy members thought they were voting for season two or were influenced by the fact that they had watched season two and therefore gave much of uh, if not all of the awards in comedy for uh, for the bear, which. Well, we'll, I'm gonna save the comedy thing for a second, but you know, well, we've been on that before. You put on Twitter (laughs) poll or whatever I saw. I don't know, you know, like, is the bear comedy? I don't really think it is. Um, I was a little disappointed. I mean, look, and and the bear is great, you know, so they deserve awards. That's fine. I'm not griping about that directly. But the fact that then we don't get any awards for Barry, right, also in all the comedy categories, and in particular, like, I wish they would have at least given Bill Hader one of them, you know, give him the writing or directing one, like split those or something. Or um, give, him, give him the actor because Jeremy Allen White's going to have at least, I would imagine, two more opportunities to get it. Yeah, I mean, you could also give him the actor one, but look, if you, you know, looking the um, Barry episode that was nominated for both writing and directing was the finale. Yes, okay. and where you know Bill Hader wrote and directed, and you know, like giving 
giving him credit on the side behind the camera, at least I would have appreciated. And said they gave they gave both of those awards to Christopher Storer. Um, I don't know how how do we parse this? You know, yeah. like well, it's, it, it's, it just feels like they voted chalk. You know, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone agrees he's a good show, so let's just vote him. Since, since you referenced it, yeah, last night after the Emmys, I put a poll out on X on yeah. on Twitter, as it were. And uh, you should know, most people agree with you. So as of right now, the results are 78% believe the bear is not a comedy. Yeah. All right. Yes. So you're, you're in the majority. Yeah. There we go. But, you know, they I think they wanted to give it awards. And that's part of why they did it. And then the yeah. length. And I don't know. And like, uh, what? If they put it in drama, then it would have lost the succession all over the place. And Exactly. Um, said Better Call Saul gets to lose again. I, I saw uh, shortly before we came on. So not only has uh, Better Call Saul never won an Emmy, which is quite striking for the best show yeah. of the century, um, but um, it now has the record for most Emmy losses, as it were. Um, 53? 58? I think it was 53 nominations and zero oh, wins. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's perennially been nominated, deservingly, and it's just consistently yeah. lost to, you know, Game of Thrones, um, succession. succession, basically. Yeah. And, I mean, it's like, actually, I want to go, the bigger gripe would be pointing back to the past and it's like, Game of Thrones shouldn't have beaten it. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have to do, I have to do, I have to find another post tweet, whatever you want to call it, that I knew you would like. Uh, you're familiar with Bill James, the the grandfather of baseball stats and research. Anyway, he's he's okay. uh, he, he's, he's active on, on tw Twitter. And he just put out a tweet right before we went on that said, um, succession featured, you know, all these different things. And he's put out a poll. Which one of the, he's basically mocking succession. Which one of these things did you like the most about the show? A, the horrible people, B, the repetitive plots, or C, the petty squabbles. Yeah, there you go. B, the shaky cam. You know, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm not going to rag on succession. I'm on the record that I am not an enjoyer of it. Yeah. But um, certainly I know a lot of people are. It's very critically acclaimed. And I'm just leave that as being kind of not for me. But yeah, that is an amusing little poll there. Yeah, so no no surprises. Um, and I guess uh, I guess that's is that kind of it for television award season. We've had Globes, Critics Choice, and Emmys. Um yeah, I mean I'm not I'm not positive about smaller ones as exactly. awards maybe still to come, but um yeah, I don't have like a full schedule of, but I think they already I think they already did do like the um, Directors Guild Awards yeah. and some of these other ones as well. So, um, yeah, probably about closes it out. Um, what else we got in the news here? Yeah, I was noticing um, there was a lot of hand-wringing, pearl-clutching about the NFL putting a playoff game on a streaming service for the first time this year on Peacock. So if you wanted to watch the Chiefs and the Dolphins and Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, you had to have a subscription to Peacock. There were a lot of people upset about this, but apparently it was the largest live streaming audience ever. It got more than 23 million viewers, which is significantly more than several playoff games that were on terrestrial TV last year. So, you know, for all the complaining, um, you know, it, 
NBC is getting quite a big check from uh, from from this playoff game after after earning the rights for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I did see various people griping about it, and um, it, it, my read, I guess, is just like everyone was like me, sitting there saying like, "Yeah, what do you mean they're putting it on a peacock <laughs> only? Yep. That's not yep. okay. I object." And <laughs> here's my six dollars. So watch that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of those of those twenty three million, if even five million of them were were new subscribers, I mean, that's a quick uh, quick thirty mil for for Universal, I guess, to show this game. Well, it's a weird thing because you know NBC has the rights to all sorts of NFL games, and right. I think that they, I think most, I think the games that are on NBC you can watch on Peacock, you know, but they were uh, taking it to another level to say this is only going to be on Peacock, and of course this is the second one. There was a regular season game that yes. I'm sure did not drive subscribers because I think it was the <laughs> Bills versus the Eastern Stick led Chargers. Right, right. Um, I subscribed then, by the way. <laughs> I, that's when I got my graphic on there. Um, but uh yeah, no, I, I get it. It's been a while though since they put I mean, I think you almost have to go back to when they put Monday Night Football on ESPN. Yes, yeah. Uh as the kind of turning point um to say this is only going to be available for people who are paying money, as it were. You know, I don't know if the youth today even recall being able to just turn on the TV with an antenna. Exactly. Um, so I don't know. I was um, I was looking to Mike Florio a little bit, and he was saying some things about how well they do. Maybe need to be a little bit careful here. Um, uh, the way they bargain for the games and packages relies on the yeah. Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, there, there were several that. things saying that the NFL could lose its its broadcasting trust. Be, if they keep proliferating it like this, um, yeah, it is. It is interesting. Well, the way the NFL uh, sells packages of games, yeah, would be an antitrust violation if not for the specific law they passed in 1961 to allow. Yeah, exactly, do. exactly. So, well, I think the point is this was not a colossal failure, and that means it's going to happen again next year. That there's going to be another streaming service playoff game. I'm sure of it. Yeah, the Paramount Plus. <laughs> oh god Probably, well that's still cbs right yeah yeah about. anybody that's got a i mean theoretically anyone could bid on it but anyone that's got a platform already with the nfl is going to have sort of a a uh front row seat to to having an opportunity to get one yeah one would imagine but again they do need to be a little bit careful here. i don't think anyone wants the government revisiting that no that law they passed in 1961 and they, they they do not want people asking questions like is streaming broadcasting. Yeah. They do they do they no one wants that, I think. So um I wouldn't expect, you know, I was talking to someone on um I guess it was on Blue Sky who was like really freaking out about it. I was like, I wouldn't expect it to be like quickly, radically the case that everything's just streaming. Yeah. No, no, no. It's too much money on those networks to uh to go go fully away from it well speaking of speaking of uh cannibals no i don't know how to say <laughs> um, dan campbell yeah, yeah. <laughs> no um i don't know did you ever see the the this first season it sort of became a quick hit um evan peters is jeffrey dahmer on monster on netflix did you watch this oh i didn't i didn't watch that no i know it, it was, was like kind of a hit yeah he was i mean the show was was 
hit or miss, but he was spectacular. I mean, just absolutely spectacular as Jeffrey Dahmer. The show became a hit, got renewed for two more seasons very quickly. And so they've been casting the second season of Monster. It's going to focus on the Menendez brothers. Remember these guys, Kyle and Eric? Oh, yeah. They yeah, killed sure. their parents in New York. So the parents have been cast, and I just found that an interesting interesting choices. Javier Bardem and Chloe Sevigny are going to be the parents. Um, I guess the the parents who don't make it very long. But, yeah, I was uh, like, they, they probably won't be in the show very much. Yeah, right. Who's playing uh, brothers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've been seeing news on who's going to be the, the brothers, but th this is great. I mean, I, I'm a big Javier Bardem fan, and I think that there will be some sort of backstory to this show, not just a murder and move forward through the trial so it's it, this is interesting casting to me yeah it is interesting casting and you know ryan murphy i would you know, i expect it to be nice and like kind of glossy <laughs> yeah flick you know <laughs> on the line of melodrama sort of but not right. quite you know the raw ryan murphy thing the shows always, i feel like your shows always get renewed but then they don't always make them like yeah what happened to the politician i sort of liked that one i thought they were gonna oh, yeah. make more of that and it was yeah. like you know, I'm busy with other things. No, this uh, this show. I, I mean, it just was sort of was this combination of right, right star, right time. Um, you know, sort of release it in that fall window where you're sort of thinking about Halloween and all this. You know, just these, um, just sort of that creepy air about everything, and it, it just kind of hit really quickly. Obviously, people love true crime. Um, it was very well shot. So, um, I mean, clearly this was, you know, this case of the Menendez brothers was the, you know, the case of the century before O.J. Simpson came around. So it'd be interesting to see how they, how they tackle that. Yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's on Netflix, right? Yes, sir. Um, cool. So, yeah, what, what have you been watching lately? Sort of segment of that. Yeah, we're, um, as I think as we've discussed in our last episode, we're both, uh, sort of thumbing in on on True Detective, which we can talk about more in a bit. Um, other than that, I've almost finished the binge of of Echo, and in between all of that and Fargo finishing up, trying to to make my way through season two of Slow Horses, which we've talked about quite a bit. So not yeah. too much. Just glad there's some new things for coming on online, as it were, over the next uh, next few weeks. Yeah, there is a there's a decent amount of stuff here in January that uh, looks like it may be worth watching. As it were, um, uh, we published on the site Isabel Greaves' review of Echo today. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to check that out, and uh, on what was it Friday, the Curse finale, which I I read on the Curse all season. <laughs> um, so we published the finale article, and then of course people watched it over the weekend, and it was on the linear Showtime. Um, you had a chance to check it out. What did you think? I frankly loved it. Uh, well, not obviously, we're not going to give any spoilers here. Um, thought that, boy, if one or two guys are going to take the step that they took in that finale, it was going to be Benny Safdie and Nathan Fielder. Yeah. I, I mean, it was just sort of. On, totally on par with sort of what they it seemed like they were on the edge of all season but really like okay what's happening here? something's going to sort of be the tipping point something's going to just just move into the absolutely wild and absolutely just reaction that you weren't weren't expecting um 
the my favorite thing that I did on Friday after I watched that was just typed in the curse finale into Google and to see the headlines of the things that were up, right? Yeah. As how people were describing them. And clearly these are non-spoiler headlines, but lots of things, you know, yours was wait, what? Somebody's yeah, I was gonna say maybe I could have done a little better. You know? <laughs> yeah. Some of them were worst finale ever. What did I just watch? Um, I mean, so some of them were you know, the purest form of art, uh, you know, just all these things, range of reactions, which is what I'm sure what they were hoping for when they when they produced this finale. Yeah, indeed. I, I am discovering that I think that um, Alan Sepinwall and I are, are opposites, at least when it comes <laughs> to Nathan Fielder projects. Yes, um, yes. So just to put that out there, if you yeah. thoroughly enjoyed the rehearsal and want to read the articles by someone who also did, read mine. Yeah. If not, go read Sepinwall. <laughs> he was offended by that one uh and then then on this one too he was just kind of like you know what, what's the point of the show or something like that yeah exactly um but uh i think he said it was deeply frustrating um yeah you gotta enjoy that anyway yeah i mean i basically loved it too um don't want to spoil what happens if people haven't watched it you know definitely recommend it if you're into this sort of thing anyway i don't know that it's for everyone and that might be part of why there are some of those negative reactions that kind of buzz everyone quote unquote yeah. everyone started feeling like they had to watch it yeah i would be very curious i haven't seen any numbers on this show have you seen numbers on streaming have have you anything? Yeah, you know, only on paramount plus streaming so very curious how i went mean, certainly got you know made its way into the discourse and and into the critical review, but I don't have to see anything on yeah. how many people watched it. Yeah. Jane Hookwood. Well, personally, and I want to spoil the ending, but I would have been on board for just multiple seasons of um, you know, banal awkwardness of these <laughs> these characters. Like I would have signed up for that. I don't think we're gonna get that. Um, you never know though, right? Like I got they're supposed to make a second season of the rehearsal. How? How? What? Yeah. But they're I guess also, you know, maybe it'll happen sometime. There also James Marsden came out this week saying how they would be able to to make a second season of Drew Duty, which we talked a little bit about how that was, you know, this sort of element to to that show. So there's some shows I don't understand how they'd be able to do it. But, you know, I, clearly there's there are enough people out there that don't have their heads buried in the stuff like we do that, that they might be able to to do it. But you never know. Yeah, really, just have almost a, a, a new idea or i mean i'm really curious about the rehearsal because yeah. that that show kind of started out one way and then took a turn and then took another <laughs> turn you know and so if they make more i think it's just going to go another direction somehow and i, I can't predict yeah. it at all um anyhow besides that we watched some game shows you caught up on celebrity jeopardy i've not caught up yet no i've started working through some um but have not caught up um and, and combining celebrity and jeopardy i guess you saw this emma stone and i guess the curse this emma stone news this week right um she's she makes she it is her life's goal to be on the real jeopardy oh really i didn't i didn't she submit she submits the test every summer they let you do it once a year she really wants to be on she doesn't want to be on the celebrity one she wants to be on the real one so she can show that she can compete against that um so i guess you'll never see emma stone on on celebrity jeopardy Something of a shame, but I, you know, I wish her luck in getting on the yeah. uh, the flagship, as it were. Um, this past week's episode of Celebrity uh, Celebrity Jeopardy 
was Katie Nolan's semifinal. Oh, um, I've been reading about this. Yes, 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 yes. And uh, I was glad that I watched it when I did um, because we had another Pablo Torre finds out episode with Pablo Torre, Katie Nolan, and Dan Soder um, talking through Katie's appearance in the semifinal. I, I don't know. I find that immensely entertaining, but you know, you could just watch that if that's what you wanted. Yeah. Uh, without watching the uh, Jeopardy episode itself, you know, um, but really cool kind of behind the scenes look and breakdown of the experience of being on Jeopardy, which yeah, you know, yeah. is cool. I, I got to catch up on that. We may have talked about this before, but I, I am a Jeopardy strategy nerd, particularly as it turns to selection and betting and all this sort of strategy of how that all works. So I need to see how the celebrities handle handle this because the, as you said, the flagship folks have kind of figured it out and broken the broken the code there. I need to see how. Oh yeah, there's some stuff about that in there. Like oh okay, Katie, Katie talks about how she was hunting for the Daily Doubles. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's the way to do it. So anyway, I recommend both those things. And then I think I think the next Celebrity Jeopardy comes out like tomorrow or whatever. Okay. Um, you know, I think it's on Wednesdays. But um yeah, that's about it on my end when we get to Fargo. Yeah, let's let's do it. Let's break down this finale. Okay. So uh, as per usual, on the other side of a little break here, we're gonna have spoilers on the table for Fargo, the season finale, season five, episode ten, titled This Quick. Um, so this is your big spoiler warning. It'll be about 10 seconds of music. We'll pick up on the other side talking about Fargo. Okay, welcome back. Fargo, season five, the finale, episode 10, titled Bisquick, written by Noah Hawley, directed by Thomas Bazooka. Uh, we open with Gator, who's been abandoned by his father, Roy Tillman. Gator manages to find his way to the authorities outside the ranch, and he's going to switch allegiances, giving up information about Roy and about the ranch and what's happening. Meanwhile, Roy is increasingly becoming unhinged. He kills Odin, Karen's father. But uh, Dorothy finds him and shoots him in the stomach. This gunshot sort of sets off the battle between the militia and the authorities that were waiting outside. That allows Roy to escape for a period of time. Um, Wit gives Dorothy some shelter and says he's going to hunt down Roy and take care of him once and for all. Um, as they're making their way through underground tunnels, Roy surprises him and stabs Deputy Farr in the heart, killing him. They're underground, um, thinking he's found a way out. Roy makes his way through the tunnels up to the front of his ranch, only to be greeted by the authorities that Gator led to him. In other words, he knew where he would be. From flash forward one year later, Lorraine visits uh, Roy in prison and basically tells him his life is about to become a living hell because she's paid dozens and maybe hundreds of prisoners to torture him but still keep him alive while he's in prison. And then the finale ends at Wayne and Nadine and Scotty's home, where Ole Munk shows up as they're cooking chili for dinner, saying that a debt still needs to be paid back from what was transpired in the first couple episodes of, this, of the season. Dorothy uh, is able to talk him down from that, introducing him to a new way of living, a new worldview, 
introducing him to a world where you surround yourself with food and people that, uh, that you love, then you can get rid of maybe decades or centuries of sin and redefine your life. So that's our lesson for the day of what, uh, what we've learned and how we can turn away from our bad deeds, I guess. So all of those things transpired and, and uh, maybe sort of in some interesting order and some interesting um, speed, which we'll talk about, but anywhere you want to start first with that finale. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think with this one, I almost just want to work through it in order. You know, I mean, yeah. I think the time yeah. jump is, is kind of odd in a certain way. Um, but yeah, so let's start with the beginning, because the first thing that struck me was just how quick it is exactly. um, that it's resolved, the, the confrontation on the ranch, you know, um, and Roy slitting Odin's throat, didn't see that coming, really. What, what exactly was going on there? Why was that occurring? You know what I mean? Like, part of what I want to talk about with the quickness of it is what happened to all the militia guys? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the 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 authorities seem to have lost no one. They're all there at the end. Um, I guess they're either shot or taken in, you know, in, in, into custody. But it was a battle that didn't didn't last long and didn't have much loss of life, at least on the on the authority side. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is the point when it comes down to it that you have um, these militia guys who talk a big game, and then when it comes down to it, the the power of the the feds uh, is such that it's just overwhelming, and they don't stand a fighting chance, and they never did, yeah. or something like that. I mean, I guess that's how I read into. Yeah, I mean, I guess just these. Uh weekend militia guys against trained lifetime killers swap team members you know it's just it, it ended up apparently we know one of those one of the, another one of these things we didn't really see on screen wasn't much of a battle in the end you know the one-on-one -on -one confrontations were much more interesting and much more informative than what happened in the in the battle yeah i mean i kind of i, I kind of expected a gunfight from the yep. setup last episode uh, and so, yeah, there's a question there of how I read that and what exactly did happen to uh, the the patriots, quote unquote, right. uh, who uh, showed up to the ranch. Well, we saw them there and so on. Well, maybe there just weren't really all that many of them. Yeah. You know, but uh, I mean, I also found myself thinking if there had been a 35 minute battle, you know, how would I have enjoyed that versus some of the things we got following. I mean, there's sort of this trade-off, I guess, you have to make between what what happens here. Yeah, well, it still could have been quick. It could have been like the feds coming in and the guys are like, they just, <laughs> just mow them down. They just, they just like mow them down and like they're all falling over <laughs> and then like, uh, and then Roy's like, oh no, you know, like it still could have been quick. It was just, there was less violence than, than I thought there would be in the surrounding context, I guess is yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, well, the idea of, so I guess, you know, after this battle starts with so this idea of Roy, as you mentioned, cuts Odin's throat. I, I mean, he's just off the reservation, unhinged now, right? Anything that challenges him, disrupts him, steps him off his plan, you know, whether it's Gator or Monk or Dorothy or or Odin or anyone, he's just, he's flying through them. And, you know, no one's going to stop him. As he said in the last episode and said in this episode, this is not part of his journey. This is not a stop at Starbucks. This is the end. So he's committed to getting to the end of this thing, um, which, of course, he sort of has to make a 180 on that or he gets shot and tries to sneak out through the tunnels. Yeah. Um, 
And then, so we have the, right, well, slow down. Um, Dorothy shoots him yes. on the porch in the stomach. And it looks like she's going to shoot him again and kill yes. him. But then, right, like sort of at that moment, um, Whitfar shows up, the authorities have showed up, you know, like, don't shoot him, we're going to arrest him. But there's a little bit of a through line of a question about the competence of Whitfar or something related to that about the law, I think, is, mm -hmm. is, is what I started thinking about. Because Roy is able to sneak off the porch. How'd you let that happen exactly? Um, but then in the confrontation between Roy and Wit, um, like clearly Wit could have just shot him, but he doesn't do that. Yeah. This is a part I had a little bit of trouble with. I mean, I think in that scene, we clearly see Wit pull the trigger as Roy is lunging at him with the, with the knife. I mean, they were 18 inches from each other. I, I don't know how... Wit missed in, in that situation, but you know, he was just such a I think such a character that was always looking out for what's right, in particular what he could do to save or help Dorothy to just be, I don't know, he's not painted as incompetent, he's sort of painted as he couldn't ever do his job as a as a trooper. He couldn't ever yeah. get anything done. Yeah, I mean, maybe I misspoke a little bit with what I said about competence as the question. I think it is more, I think he does ultimately pull pull the trigger, but he's too late. And, you know, like somehow he's missed him and, you know. But before that, he's got the gun pulled on him. Exactly. You know, he's got him dead to rights. And he wants to do what he's supposed to do, which is arrest this guy peacefully, non-violently. I'm pointing a gun at you. Put the knife down. I'm going to call for backup. Um, and what we get, I think it's it's a certain parallel almost to Danish's mistake mm -hmm. in his estimation of, of Roy that Roy is not going to submit to you know, that kind of legal authority Um yeah, I think that's pretty consistent. We see, especially in the last third of the season, anyone who thinks Roy will give in or submit to any kind of level of any authority has misjudged him. And how would they have misjudged him after all this time they've seen who he is, what he does? Um, you know, how could this many people miscalculate what he's going to do? Well, I think part of it is because his whole thing it, 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 it goes beyond self-interest mm -hmm. at, at a certain point right um like perhaps it would be in his self-interest or it would have been in his self-interest to not kill danish right yeah. it would have been in his self-interest to instead let dorothy go take danish's offer um proceed to run for re-election and win probably now you've got these fake royce Hillmans out of the way it would, it, but when push comes to shove here, it, with wit, it would be in his self-interest to just hand himself over and go to prison. He only goes to prison anyway. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but that he's just going to fight and kill and um, there's there's a, a hubris to that or narcissism. 
which is interesting. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it just compares to something he says later on when he's in prison, that prison is the way that things should be. Yeah, we can go there, right? Yeah, you, you, you fight the weak, you kill your enemies, you you take what you want, you you, you just sort of, it, it's sort of basically survival of the fittest. And that's what sort of, I think that's his worldview throughout. And he's, it's interesting to think like he's most comfortable in, in prison with that that worldview. That just seems like who, who he was those last few episodes. Yeah, at least that's what he says. And I don't know, he's romanticizing prison. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about the guards, you know? Uh, but then that Lorraine's move is to turn that on him, you know, to say, okay, well, you want it to just all be power relations here in prison. Right. Uh, I'm going to basically bribe a bunch of these guys to turn them against you. Um, have fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we have seen um oh boy you know Breaking Bad comes to mind lots of uh, prisoners can be bought for not much to do a lot of horrific things and it seems like Lorraine had found a way to do it yeah which again then there's the there's the kind of parallel and contrast between Lorraine and Roy running throughout yeah where is Lorraine really morally speaking a lot better than Roy. I think that's one question we should be asking ourselves here. Yeah. She's more civil. Yeah. But... Did did you find yourself comfortable or satisfied with the fact that Lorraine quote unquote won um compared to Roy or were we sort of looking for you know I sort of found myself throughout the series looking for both of them to lose in some way. I don't want to say that Lorraine's art completely got redefined just because she was nice to Dorothy a few times, but, you know, are we happy with the fact that Lorraine won between the two of them? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I certainly wouldn't say that I feel personal satisfaction about that specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I personally feel happy that Dorothy is okay and yes. having biscuits with Wayne and Scotty, you know, I'm on board <laughs> with that. Um, but that's what's sort of interesting about about the dynamic you know yeah. that it's not roy as the bad guy and lorraine as the good guy as mm -hmm. it were uh as we talked about previously in terms of their politics and social leanings and everything they're they're kind of they'd be voting for the same presidential candidate i think right Absolutely. put it that way um, but the difference is that Roy is going in this direction of this kind of brutality and um, Lorraine's in the direction of civility, but she's perfectly happy to, you know, screw people over and take advantage of all of these debtors, right? Yes. Um, that her status and her position next to someone or next to a group of people earns her the right to be able to do whatever she wants, basically. Yeah. And I guess there's a big theme about debt. Like yes. uh, that's uh, something of a through line. Roy talks about um, kidnapping Dorothy as a matter of a debt that needs to be repaid. Mm -hmm. um, certainly Munch is uh, tied up in the thought of debt and, and yeah. what is owed. Um, this is where I thought the time jump was a little odd. That's occurring one year later. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's he been doing? What's he, he's been just in his rocket chair, <laughs> and uh, he's like, "Well, 
a man has to, you know, collect a debt. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, that that's a little bit odd. Um, but that does seem like it's the thematic through line, something about debt. And then Lorraine, uh, who is, you know, a debt collector um, and wealthy because of it. Yeah. And using her, using her position as a, a way to say that that debt is increased this, this unpassable chasm between the powerless, those in debt and those with the power, those that control the debt or who run the debt or, or, or who, to whom the debt is owed. Um, and yeah, I was just thinking about the difference between Lorraine and and Munch in that sense that they both think very powerfully and very um, I think thoughtfully about what debt is and what it means. Um, I don't get the picture that Lorraine is going to change who she is and her business practices and what her business is going to look like going forward. And that Indira and and Nadine are going to be these these wonderful influences on you know changing changing any of that um but it, it's certainly I, I think there are different perspectives as you're talking about theme of debt roy lorraine monk even um, getting down to dorothy and Aideen, have these different perspectives on what debt is and what a debt should be yeah right i mean the question about the morality of debt also mm -hmm. if you think about it through what lorraine does but it's very official uh, I don't know if people listening have ever gotten in trouble with debt collectors or what have you. Um, largely, what do they do? They harass you. They call you on the phone all the time, you know, but it's like largely trying to play on the thought that, hey, this is a debt that you owe with a certain yeah. kind of moral force behind it. Um, legally speaking, often it's a matter of, you know, like a record credit and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't tend to go a lot further than that, as as I understand it, right? It's like, um, so how do we think about the kind of morality of debt? And I think Monk is is a figure in line with that. And the ending moment is through um what Dorothy has to say about forgiveness, right? So yeah, and Monk is almost the most fundamental base level understanding of debt. There's something that's owed, it must be paid, it must be equal, it must be given. And Dorothy's basically says, why? Yeah, why exactly. does it have to be that way? Um, it was, certainly has been that way since literally the beginning of time, but why? If, if there is other circumstances or there are things that can move people past that just, just why i think that's her monk <laughs> is kind of thrown for loop with that question yeah which is interesting too because there's a question th there's something very christian about this i think mm -hmm. and there's something like kind of internal to christianity um monk does seem to be telling us he is the guy from wales i yes. don't know if we believe that or, or not that was my take on it you know, yeah, but the background question, like, so do you buy that there's a character who's 500 years old or whatever? Um, all right, yeah, we can do that, I suppose. But you have that ceremony, regardless of the sin eating, you know, that's that's tied up in this sort of logic of 
uh, the sin as almost a kind of currency, you know, or it's, it's being consumed or like you're taking on the debt of another or, yeah. or something like that. Um, and of course, there's there's a long history of thoughts about debt in relation to religion and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, but there's also the kind of sentiment within Christianity, at least historically, at least think about early Christianity, of, of forgiveness mm -hmm. and of forgiveness of debts, precisely, yeah. right? Yes. Um, and the way that that carried forward historically, for, for a very long time, um, it was considered a sin to engage in usury, right? Like yes. you were you were a Christian, yes. you weren't allowed to like lend people money at interest. That that's one hundred percent right. And you just sort of think about the dichotomy of you know there there is literally sort of this Old Testament view of debt where it was eye for an eye. You take what you are owed. Um, if someone does something to your family, you do it in the same you know in the same way unto them. And then you move into this, again, more um, Messianic Christianity, which would be the sense of, as you said, um, the idea of usury was um, something that said, no, we're not going to do that. And then the, you know, there's a famous parable from the Gospels of a, you know, a rich ruler forgiving a man of a very, very, very large debt. And then that man goes to someone else who owes him a very small debt and puts him in prison because he can't pay it. And saying, you know, when, you know, how can you do this when I forgave you this big debt? This idea of no matter what it is, it's something where you should look beyond the fact of um, we don't treat each other this way. That with just, we only treat someone a certain way based on what they owe us or what they should be able to do for us. Um, and so, I, I mean, that just seems like Nadine, Dorothy is tying all these skewed perspectives of debt and power um she's tying that all into what i, I i'm guessing noah holly and the you know the runners of this show are saying what they their perspective is on what this this topic is yeah and i think i think you're right that her move fundamentally is to say why right it's yeah. like a debt must be paid why mm -hmm. yeah why why can't it be forgiven yeah um and tying that into how monk is viewing himself um he himself feels i guess caught in those structures of debt and obligation maybe it's one year later because he, he almost doesn't even really want to collect this debt that he can't yeah. get over it you know and a man must you know do what a man's supposed to do or i realized it took me a while to realize he like always talks that way yes at first yeah. i didn't quite realize he always talks that way it's maybe a little much but um the way she ropes him into helping with the biscuit, and then, <laughs> and then I think that the closing scene—it it really worked for me, at least. Yeah. Did it work for you? The very, it, very it, end. It, it did. I, I I did enjoy that scene again, just sort of very um, Christian imagery of the idea of the power of community and food and 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 meeting together at a table, um, and sort of what that can do and how that can develop and grow. Um, relationships and and camaraderie. Um, but to your point, I, I think maybe some of the best moments of this entire season were Wayne's responses to Monk because he's just sort of trying to engage him in conversation and Monk's facial reactions to Scotty and Dorothy as they are trying to make the food and he's trying to understand what it is that they're that they're doing. I, I mean, just unbelievable 
uh, intentional, unintentional comedy. It was just, it, I just, it was falling out of my chair with those parts. Yeah, absolutely. Like everything just rolls right off of Wayne. He's not concerned. <laughs> you, do you want a soda? You know, it's like, uh, yeah. uh, I saw a tiger once. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All of that's great. And I think it does feed into it, you know, because while while Dorothy is taking Monk seriously mm-hmm. and talking about why he's there, um, that mostly, yeah, we're, we're going to go about our business. We're, we're making chili. You know, yeah. she says, so you can either wash your hands and help make biscuits or we can do this another time, you know, and he's just kind yeah. of, he doesn't get to control the situation. Um but it's very. I don't know. I'm sorry. I have a thought. I'll get there eventually. You say something. <laughs> it's the, the idea that she can. So what's right me is the idea that Dorothy can in a way control him. And it's not control. It's not power over him. It's introduce that. If it is the case that Monk has been feeling this way, doing these things, living with nothing but sin as a part of who he is for 500 years, that something as simple as let's sit together, let's talk together, let's share a meal, let's do something out of the sort of out of of the normal context of who you are can change a person. I mean, we've talked about how some things in this series are sort of too nail on the head. Um, You know, I don't know if that's what they're necessarily going for. That's sort of the sort of the sense of um, we can reconcile some things if we'll sit down and and share some things with each other, as opposed to I have this power, you have that power. Let's see whose power wins. Right. No, it's they they treat him with kindness. They treat yeah. him with love. They're sort of welcoming, you know, never being adversarial. Even and Dorothy's not being adversarial to him. Um, and this is the point I was trying to work to if I can figure out how to put it, you know, that ultimately she says, you know, you 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 eat something made with love and forgive, mm-hmm. right? And um, forgive yourself probably also in there. And, you know, he takes a bite of the biscuit and smiles and that's the end, right? But yeah. there's something very sort of light to that, um, that, that, gets at some notion of I guess I wanted to say transcendence but I don't know if I'm making sense to people like what is transcendent about forgiveness is that there's almost there's no line of reasons that lead up to it so much as it can just kind of almost magically happen yeah I think transcendence is is a good word and there's also in a, a sense to me that there is certainly a a mountain of gratitude and forgiveness and and kindness being shown from uh from Dorothy and her family to Monk but he takes this thing he eats it he consumes it he changes himself we can't forget that he had a hand in making that too you can't you can't just you, you have to sort of take that step yourself as well it wasn't just Somebody ate something, gave it to me. I could change my hand. I have to sort of take a step. I have to do something. I have to be a part of it as well. Yeah, that's good, right? He'll make the biscuits. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> They're involved in, in, in this community and mm-hmm. welcomed into this, you know, um, 
So I thought that I thought that worked quite well, and, and yeah, and I didn't really see it coming, but in retrospect, I can kind of see how these themes do tie the season together in a meaningful way. Thinking about debt and thinking about forgiveness, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's um, the, the the forgiveness element. I, I think maybe we should have even expected it when you talk so much about debt and literally a debt collection company and literally debts that must be paid. Were we not always working towards the idea of debt being being forgiven? Yeah, it was right there, <laughs> right? Like it was staring us in the face. We're just we're just caught up in you know uh, kind of hating Roy Tillman. And of course, I guess we're not forgiving him really right. as it as uh fargo comes to an end here uh what about gator gator, gator you know i think there are a couple things we have to assume we have to assume that you know we don't ever see but he's he did we we're wondering then the blast but did he lose his eyes yes i think he lost his eyes um we know that he had an about face gave up his father gave up some very significant pieces of information that helped him in that standoff um he and Dorothy had this moment of reconciliation towards the end and um, even asking about his mother. I think that was the moment, even more so than him being tortured or abandoned. I think that was the moment where I felt the most empathy for Gator when, you know, actually I didn't see your mother. You know, you can't go see her yourself. Um, just that he knows that his life is completely, completely over at that point. Yeah. But it does seem clear, I guess. Dorothy forgives him, I think. Yes. Yeah. She forgives him. She, yeah. she says she's going to visit him in, in prison. And does he still like oatmeal raisin cookies? Right. <laughs> is that, a, is that, I mean, how come, do people, that's, that's your favorite kind of cookie? That's no, that's, that's no one's favorite kind of cookie. No, no one's favorite cookie is oatmeal raisin. <laughs> um, but anyway, Gators apparently. So yeah, but I think, um, and that's interesting, circling back around on it. I don't know if we have any more thoughts on this, but we're thinking about forgiveness. It does kind of seem like when it comes down to it, the ones who are still outside of that are Roy and I guess also Lorraine. Yeah, yeah. Still in the logic of of debt, as it were. Yeah. And how much Lorraine is involved in sort of the collection of things or the punishment of, of people who don't pay you know she has sort of risen to this level even though she may have had some redeeming moments of doling out the punishment of actively taking the steps herself to uh, make sure that Roy is going to suffer um so yeah I don't get the impression that that Lorraine is has sort of become a I'm going to go eat chili with him every night of the week you know type of mother-in-law um but she has <laughs> she, maybe she's even dug herself even more now that she has won and now that she has um you know she can <laughs> she has shown what kind of power she has what power she's connected to right and then she's gonna make roy suffer more and exact a payment and in, in schadenfreude yeah which is, which is how this that term factors into like uh friedrich nietzsche's genealogy of morals right that that's how he thinks about it anyway. That mm -hmm. like um it is literally a joy you're taking in the suffering of another to pay the debt, you know. Yes. And he's like, we need to think about how as human beings we actually do 
potentially enjoy watching other people suffer because yeah. they think they deserve it or, or, or what have you. It's kind of like a dark impulse. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I definitely think in terms of what's going on in this episode, that's pointing in one direction. Everything going on with uh, Bisquick and the Biscuits and the closing scene is pointing in the other direction of instead. Yeah. Forgiveness. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good season overall. Yeah, good season. Got. I, I was wondering if I should put you on the spot, sort of see where you would put this in the in the Fargo seasons. Um, got a pretty clear for me. You got second, the ranking. Second season is number one. Fourth season is number five. Um, and I think seasons one and five would be vying for the second spot. Um, then pretty. Uh, Significant gap um, to get to three, another gap before you get to four. Yeah, I would think pretty similarly. I would probably put season one above season five. You know, like two, one, five, three, four. Or yeah, something. I bet that's, that's where I land. What well, I, yeah. Probably what I would do. I like season one quite a bit, you know, I mean, but also that was the, the first uh, experience of they're making a Fargo TV show. Is it going to be any good? Hey, it actually is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, so. Oh, and this is not just a word for word or shot for shot remake of the movie. This is this is just the same style and a different story. So yeah, yeah so I, mean, I think season then, one's always going to get a bump for me just for being season one. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think I think we agree on the the power ranking of Fargo seasons. Probably everyone else does too. Yeah, I don't know. We put it out there, Adorable. You let us know. Yell at us. Yeah, let us know. Let us know. Season four is the best season. You know, let us know. We're um. All right, well, I think that about does it here. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're done with Fargo. I think we're we're full time pivoting to True Detective now, right? Yep, True Detective Night Country. Uh, so that premiered a couple of days ago on Sunday. We did a podcast episode on the first episode, uh, the premiere part one, and we'll be back each Sunday night working through True Detective for the next five weeks. I guess yep. so. Uh, you can look out for our next episode on part two uh, this coming Sunday night. I guess that'd be the 21st. And uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, very much looking forward to that. This was a great season. I appreciate being able to talk with you through it. Yeah, me too. I I, I think, talking about how much we like the season, I definitely think I like it more, having these conversations with you, thinking it through, doing the podcast and all of that, than yeah. I would have if, um, if I just watched it entirely on my own so hopefully that uh hopefully that goes for people who listen along with us too right i think that's kind of the point of what we're doing here definitely definitely cool all right so we'll be back on sunday night talking about true detective night country part two thanks for listening uh if you're so inclined please do you know like leave us a good review wherever you listen to the podcast uh you can check us out on uh youtube and subscribe there uh Find us on social media, you know, search for TV Obsessive, uh, go to tvobsessive.com and read articles and so on. Um, we'll have a recap from Felicia Nickens on this episode of Fargo you can read. And uh, Ryan's writing on True Detective Night Country in addition to talking with me on the podcast about it. Um, so, see you on Sunday. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see you then. Thanks for being Minnesota nice to me throughout this series, and we'll uh, we'll head up to Alaska after this. I guess can't escape the cold. I don't. I don't think 
that means what you think it means. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Minnesota, nice. <laughs> right. All uh, right. We'll just see. We'll just we'll just move out to Alaska. See what we can do for each other. Yeah. All right. See you in the darkness on Sunday. All right. See you then.